That's good. Okay, let's start with a question. Let's, um, let's say that you are in charge of the universe. You're the one that made all this. Um, you're the one that created all this wonderful stuff out here, stuff that we see every week, those of us that live here. And, um, and the people that you created to take care of it, they kind of messed up and made a big mess of everything. What would you do? <laughs> I saw several people go, <laughs> would you have ever thought to do it the way God's doing it? Would you have ever thought to approach this problem the way God is approaching it? I mean, I'm a guy. I like fixing things, right? And uh, God seems to be a lot more patient. It's a good thing for most of you that I'm not God, by the way. <laughs> it's a good thing for me that you're not God. <laughs> right? God is, he's, how do you describe it? He's wild. He's mysterious. He's dangerous. He's uh, frightening. He's gracious. He's loving. Would you have ever thought to solve the problem the way he does? Okay, we're looking at uh, the Holy Spirit this summer. We, we started back in Genesis, and uh, we looked at the Holy Spirit there. But for just a brief second, I want to go all the way back down here to Revelation in the eternal state. Just for a moment, so you can get a taste of what's coming. Today is the last day in the Old Testament. After today, we move to the New Testament. And uh, the way the ancient people thought of God's abode, if you will, his house, is heaven is a place where God lives. So heaven is that place that we will we'll never make it there. I know in, it's popular in our language to kind of confuse it all. We all die and go to heaven, that sort of stuff. But to be a little more accurate, heaven is where God lives and earth is where we live. We'll come back to that in just a second. When you get to Revelation, what you find is an entirely recreated place we call the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where heaven and earth come together and God dwells with us permanently. We're in the same space, if you will. That's how Revelation conceives of where we go. So technically, when we end up when we die, we end up on the new earth with each other and with the Lord. And that, that separation between heaven and earth is brought together in the new Jerusalem, the new earth. Fantastic place. Um, and God dwells in our midst. But how does that happen? Okay, now we go all the way back down to Genesis. To briefly retell the story. Remember in Genesis 1, we have the picture of a very powerful God, and the Spirit is hovering over the chaos of creation. Remember that? And then God begins the process of bringing order to all of this. Then we went to Psalm 104, which is a poetic expression of the creation. All of the days of creation are represented in Psalm 104. And there we saw that the Holy Spirit brings life. As part of that creation, he brings life and he preserves life. Now remember, we're way down here. We're way down here. And so our views on the Trinity and the Holy Spirit and all that are pretty well developed. We have doctrinal statements, statements of faith, 
all of you that are visitors from different churches, your churches all have statements of faith, and we can all rattle off Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, first, second, third person of the Trinity, all that type of language. But way back here, they didn't know that. God didn't open up and say, okay, chapter one, let's talk about me. Let me tell you about me. We're the Trinity. Well, he doesn't start that way, does he? No, he starts with a picture of the Holy Spirit hovering over the chaos. And then he moves us a little bit and says, oh, by the way, it's my spirit who brings life. And then we move from there to Isaiah because we talked about the first two weeks that the ancients thought of this creation as a temple. And that's the language they use. God created this temple. Well, he created the temple, and then we made a mess of it. And so from then on, as the Holy Spirit is introduced, we see God beginning to take care of business, to take care of business within this broken temple. So when we get to Isaiah, Mark talked about the fact that God is, he's, he's talking in the future about bringing peace. Why would he have to talk about peace? Well, we don't have it. Do we? Not really. It's an illusion. And we know that. Even today, this very moment, there are hot spots all around the world with tension. There are Christians all around the world that live wondering if they'll eat or if they'll make it through the day alive. We have a momentary glimpse of peace here. We should enjoy it, by the way. For those of you that are here on vacation, have a blast. Make the most of it. But there will come a day when God will bring peace through the entire creation, his temple. Then we went from there to Ezekiel. Move down a little bit. We move to the uh, 8th century, or uh, excuse me, 6th century B.C. And uh, we talked about the dry bones passage last week. We talked about the Holy Spirit when he comes, Ezekiel 36. He's like cleansing water. Ezekiel 37, he's like the dry bones that come to life. He breathes life into us. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he brings life. He brings refreshment. He brings something wonderful to us. Well, that's all we know so far. God doesn't start with a manual and say, chapter one, let me tell you about me. It doesn't work that way. He says, rather, let me tell you about you and me in relationship. And as that unfolds, as the scripture unfolds, we get to see more of his spirit and what that means. So you have to pretend that you're not way down here and understand all the, all the various things you've read about the spirit because the Bible hasn't revealed that yet. So we finished last week in the 6th century. Now, for our last step in the Old Testament, we're going to back up 200 years to Joel. We're going to back up 200 years and see something incredible about God and the Spirit. The context of Joel, uh, for those of you that may not remember or may not know about uh, kind of the history of Israel, Israel had, after Solomon, they divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom down around Jerusalem. The northern kingdom had 10 tribes. The southern kingdom had two, two tribes. The northern kingdom in the 8th century was overtaken by the Assyrians, and they were deported and scattered all around the Assyrian world. 200 years go by before the Babylonians take, overtake the Assyrians, and then they come and get the southern nation, and they scatter the southern nation. So last week we looked at the southern nation, their final days 
and the message of hope that God brought. That's where the Holy Spirit is coming across as cool, refreshing water and bringing life to dead bones. That chapter was written, I believe, the year after the Babylonians uh, tore Jerusalem apart and took all of them away. And we ask the question, what is it like for you to be hopeless? Your nation is gone, doesn't exist anymore. You don't exist as a people group, as a nation, an organized country. A year after that, God says, I have not forgotten you. All right. So then if we back up 200 years, we're still in the southern kingdom, but we're very aware that the northern kingdom is in trouble. The Assyrians are hauling them away. They're taking them away. So the king that was over the southern kingdom at this time was King Uzziah. Some of you may remember King Uzziah from Isaiah 6. But 2 Chronicles 26 tells us a little bit about this king. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just like his father Amaziah had done. This is a good king. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, one of the prophets, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Aren't those good words? As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He went to war against the Philistines. He broke down the walls of Gath. And the chapter goes on. It talks about all the great things he has done. Verse 9, he built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gates, at the valley gate. Built towers in the wilderness. Verse 11, he had a well-trained army ready to go out by divisions according to their numbers. So he provided, uh, verse 14, he provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows, everything. He took care of his people. But not all is right with the world, is it? Verse 16, after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. If we're not careful, that's where we all end up, isn't it? Is that where we end up? If we're not careful? After he became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And the priests, all the priests, they confronted him and said, this isn't right. You shouldn't do this. You should, you should leave quickly. And he says, no, 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 no. No. I'm the king. I'm successful. I know what's right. Hmm. Hmm. Uzziah had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense. He became angry because they confronted him. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And the priest rushed him out of the temple, and he was in a hurry to get out too because he realized that God's judgment was there. Not all is right with the world. You see, he was a good king, but the problem is the king can't, can't cause everyone to worship the Lord. We as staff pray for you all the time, but we can't make you love the Lord, can we? Any more than Uzziah could. All we can do is give you a good environment, a good experience, and, and help you step into the Lord's presence. What you do with it is up to you. 
It's up to you whether you want to serve the Lord with all your heart or not. You have to make that decision. And so right under the surface, while the northern kingdom is being dismantled and abolished, we have a good king, and right under the surface, we have these uh, cancer already beginning to grow within the nation. That's the story of Joel. Joel's written when Uzziah was the king. Toward the end of his reign, he um, turned away from the Lord. So now I'm going to read to you Joel because this is the passage that leads us into the New Testament. This is the connection to the New Testament, if you will. Now, we haven't said much about the Holy Spirit yet, but remember, way back in Genesis, way back over here, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. Through you. That promise, that thread is woven all throughout the Bible, all the way down. Even when we get to Paul, he says, God preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham by saying all the nations will be blessed. That was the gospel. That, remember, you're in charge of creation? God's in charge of this entire creation, this entire temple, and he has not forgotten us. That's the basic storyline. So he chose Abraham, then he chose the nation of Israel because of Abraham to bring salvation to the world, to the world. So in the middle of this, now the northern kingdom is being dismantled and the southern kingdom is still 200 years away, but they're in trouble. Internally in trouble because they're already rejecting the Lord. So the first thing that happens, I'm not going to read all of Joel 1 and 2, just pieces of it. Apparently, there was this invasion of these locusts. Here's how Joel starts, chapter 1. Hear this, you elders, listen to all in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards. Wake up. They had fallen asleep in their success. Uzziah led them well. Led them well. They were a nation that was prospering. This was at their greatest size and the apex of their glory since Solomon's day under Uzziah. And yet God is saying through Joel, wake up. Wake up. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drunkards of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. So chapter 1 tells us the story of this incredible uh, swarm of locusts that God sent. It's all, about, it's all about nature. God used this event to begin to try to get their attention, to cause them to wake up. It's interesting that we love to ask the question, uh, why does a good God allow bad things to happen? Not all the time, I realize that, but sometimes it's in our best interest. Sometimes when something happens to us, it drives us back to the Lord, doesn't it? It does me. It could drive me to anger and rage, or it could drive me to seeking the Lord. And God's trying to get their attention. So he says, wake up. Wake up. Then in chapter 2, Depending on how you interpret it, it could be the locust continuing, or this might actually be a reference to um, what they were experiencing around them. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. 
Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor will ever be in, in the days to come. Well, they're watching the northern kingdom be dismantled by the Assyrians. They don't yet know it. But the Babylonians are soon coming after them. It's a rugged world. It's a rough world. And until the Lord puts it all to rights, we are going to have rulers and despots in various places who will try to take advantage of us. So this may be a description of this incredible army that's coming, the Babylonian army. Such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. This is what's coming. Now remember, this is written during the days of Uzziah, when things are going pretty well. And the Lord is saying, wake up, wake up. Because you're not honoring me with all of your heart. You're not, you're not faithful to me. Now, this message today is not about you're not faithful. I don't believe that. But I want you to get the context of the words that are coming. So in chapter one, we have God uses a natural phenomena, this swarm of locusts. Chapter two, he directs the nation to come to his people. But then something very interesting happens. In verse 12, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Isn't that great? Rend your hearts, not your garments. We could use modern day language and say, um, don't just come down here and, and eat the bread at communion. No, humble your hearts. Don't sing the songs because they're written in the bulletin. No, 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 no. Open your hearts and worship the Lord. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and compassionate. That's the answer. In both cases, the locusts and the army, what God's trying to do is get attention. He's trying to get these people's attention. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, an abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Sometimes I fear we have created an image of God that is not very healthy or very fair. We picture God, he's kind of up there wringing his hands when we sin and that kind of stuff. And God's well aware of who you are. In fact, the day that God saved you, didn't he know the worst sin you're going to commit? Good thing he's got things under control. In fact, when's the last time God got in your face for anything you did, no matter how good or bad? How bad it was. That's not God's way. No, he's very patient. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. You screwed up, and Joel's saying... Turn to the Lord. Who knows? He may leave you a blessing. Grain offering and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Isn't that the God that most of us know? No matter how badly we screw up, he follows behind us, and he still loves to bless us. 
Some of you that have children that have gone in directions that you're not comfortable with, you understand some of that angst, but isn't your desire still to love and to bless, to watch over them? Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children. Those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room in the brighter chamber. Let the priest who ministers before the Lord weep in the temple. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of, of shame. Concludes that verse. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? We want this county to know about our love for the Lord, don't we? Same as them. We don't want the people that don't believe in Jesus to look at us and say, where is their God? <laughs> That's why the exhortation, stay faithful, stay faithful. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and he took pity on his people. And the Lord replied to them, I'm sending you new grain, new wine, olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. And he goes on and on and on. And he talks about how great he is, his, how great his love is, I should say. And um, he concludes verse 26. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And then he comes to one of the most fantastic prophecies of the entire Bible, one which drastically altered our life today. Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Okay, just pause. Any other God in the ancient Near East talk that way? No. Every God of every nation, all the gods had the same kind of language. You better work hard or you're not working hard enough. You're not good enough. You should be afraid. You should be frightened of me. Their whole job was to appease the gods. No God said, and after this, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This is the action of a very loving and gracious God that we serve. We don't know what it's like as Christians not to have the spirit, do we? So imagine these words as the spirit is beginning to be introduced in much fuller brighter, more colorful ways. I will pour out my spirit on all people. What a gracious God to give us his spirit. And then he starts doing what I love, what God does. Here's my basic theology of the Bible wrapped up in one or two sentences. Every time God intervenes in culture, he is taking something that's a mess and making it better. He's redeeming it. So the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the story of God every time he intervenes, improving things. He's doing away with, with uh, uh, the way we abuse each other in our relationships. He's doing away with genocide. He's doing away with slavery. He's doing away with all these things. Of course, he takes a long time. He's not in a hurry. But he's still doing it. And by the way, I would say that that's an act of grace. Can you imagine on the day that you met the Lord, if the Lord sat down with you and he said, Bill, have a seat there, buddy. Here's the list of all the sins. Can you imagine that? Brian, can you imagine that? That would be 
that would be unbearable, wouldn't it? Could we handle that? I couldn't. Could you handle the list, the Lord facing you with the list of every sin that you're involved in? That you'd... No. In my life, the Lord meets me where I am. He's very gracious to me. He allows me to continue to sin. And then he begins the very slow and gentle process of working that through. And the way he does it is by introducing himself to me in very real ways. And the more I get to know the Lord, the more my behavior begins to change. I start loving people better. I, first of all, start loving more people. <laughs> That's not easy to do. I start forgiving people. And as I age in the Lord, I find that easier and easier. I become gentle in my personality, maybe less dominating. I become more caring. I become more concerned about what's happening around me in my county and the world. I become a little more anxious for Christians in other parts of the world. You know what I mean when I say all this? So the day that you're saved, God did not confront you with all your sin. He did just the opposite. He just, not a word. He just began the process of introducing himself to you. And as you began to know him and you started getting involved with other Christians, that journey begins to go. Well, that's what he does in the world and culture. And the Bible is the large story of that from Genesis on. He just begins that process of fixing things. I would much rather live where we live today than way back in 1500 B.C. or 1000 B.C. or 500 B.C. With all the things that they had. The basic worldview was very simple. You have what I want, and I'm stronger. And I'm going to take it. That's how it worked. Nation after nation, empire after na empire, that's the way it worked. Our country, uh, maybe, you know, I, I recognize our country's made a lot of mistakes. I do realize that. I'm not naive. But at the same time, I like part being part of a country that's pr its primary goal is not to take other people's stuff and land. Because way back here, it was brutal. Not only am I going to take what you have because my army's bigger than you, but I'm going to kill you when I'm done so that you're no longer a threat. What a way to live life. And here we have this incredible God. I will pour out my spirit on all people. And as he does, he begins to anticipate and move through a problem in culture, and that is the way males and females treat each other. You see, up until this point in time, women are property. They have no rights, no freedoms, very little to look forward to. You really hope that your husband likes you. <laughs> and what does he say? Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. News break. He just put men and women on an equal footing. Prophecy was only reserved for the males. And he just introduced in the future, this is what you have to look forward to. My spirit, first of all, will be poured out on all of you. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women. Here we're not talking about slaves. We're talking about children of God. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. He says it twice. This is a God who is working to fix the ills of society in a fallen, broken creation. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, 
Blood and fire, billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Do you see the grace? Can you feel it? Just oozing out of this in this horrible time. Babylonians are coming, but there's coming a day. You can rest assured, my spirit's going to flow. And all of a sudden we have a, we start to get a much broader picture of this spirit. What's he going to do when he flows? He's going to save people. He's going to take care of the issues between men and women. He's going to start gifting women so they can do the same things as men. They can prophesy. It's fantastic words. Now jump with me to Acts 2. Here's where we make the transition. You know the basic storyline of Acts 2? Jesus has just ascended. The 120 go back to the uh, Jerusalem and they start praying. They have no idea what to do. The Messiah just left. I mean, they, it's a pretty shocking time. They watched him lead them, teach them. Then they watch him get executed and all their hope disappears. Then they watch him rise from the dead and then he leaves. Again, is that how you would work the story? If you were in charge of the universe, is that the way you do it? So they follow his instructions. They go back to Jerusalem and they just start praying. And then 50 days later, wow. Wow. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Now remember, it's wind, breath, spirit. It's all the same word. Okay, in Greek. Sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. We named this series Wind of Change because the Holy Spirit, it's like the wind. In fact, you feel that breeze just there? That's to remind us. And whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, change occurs. Change. So we call it Wind of Change. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with what? The Holy Spirit. Here it is. And they began to speak in other tongues or languages or dialects as the Spirit enabled them. Out of nowhere, across the, across the group. And I love it. Verse 5. They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. This is Pentecost. This is one of the three festivals when all the males were required to show up. And a lot of the males brought their families when they came. And they were, ev they were everywhere. Jerusalem was packed, packed full when God chose to send his spirit. So when his spirit enters the stage and introduces himself, all of the nation is present with this incredible sound. And what do they think? They think they were drunk. Verse 13, they have had too much wine. <laughs> Isn't that just the way it is to explain away the things of God, acts of nature? Why is it the acts of God? Why is that what's in our insurance clauses? I've always wondered about that. <laughs> then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the, the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> I love it. It's five o'clock somewhere. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Here it is. This grand prophecy 
is now fulfilled right here at Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. It goes through all the language. You're not going to talk about all the stuff that happened in nature, but it concludes everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of this one true God will be saved. This is a fantastic passage. You know why? Because he's beginning to explain to them who Jesus is and that this one true God really cares about them. He really cares. Not like the gods of the Romans and the Greeks that you're serving. Not at all that you're aware of. People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, uh, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, you killed him. You put him to death. But God raised him from the dead. Okay, now the second question. You executed the king, but you find out he didn't die. What would you do? How would you feel? Had a revolution, you overthrew the king, deposed the king, but you found out he didn't die. And he's come back now bigger, stronger, more powerful than ever to reign. What would you do? How would you feel? Afraid? Would you be rejoicing and throwing parties? No, when you get to the end of this whole discussion, he says, verse 36, Therefore let all of Israel be assured of this one fact. God has made Jesus, this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. I'd be terrified. Sure enough, very next verse. When the people heard this, old King James says they were cut to the quick. Mine says they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They're terrified. And what is Peter's answer? Run away. Run away. Be afraid. Turn away from God. No, no, no. It's the same answer that Joel gave. Repent. Rend your heart. Turn back to the Lord. The Lord is not the one to fear. You will always find mercy and grace when you turn to the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is now revealed to us in his full display. He came to live with us. God poured out a spirit on every one of the believers. All people. And we know from this passage, he began to indwell them. After this, they began to make sense of all this. They began to look at all this, think backwards and say, what was that that happened? But they now knew one basic fact. God now lived with us. Is that the way you would have written the script? I'm going to die for you even though you screwed up my creation. And not only am I going to die for you, but I'm going to come down and live within you so that you can enjoy that wonderful fellowship, that wonderful joy, that grace, that mercy, all the things that we long for, the things that we are created for. Is that the way you would have written the script? See how the Holy Spirit has now moved from 
hovering over creation at Acts 2, he is the one who fills us. He is the one who brings God to us. He's the one that brings us all the things that we desire. Can't get too far down that road because that's the following Sundays. But he brings us all these wonderful things. It's a merciful God. That's an incredible God. That's what his spirit does. If you don't know the Lord, if you're wrestling with Jesus, the very last thing he says is, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what he says. Same thing Paul says in Romans 10. When he talks about sending people to share Jesus with others, whoever calls, quotes Joel 2, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all it takes. If you're wrestling with Jesus and you don't know who he is, when we get to communion, come down and talk to us. Be lots of people up here. Come down and find one of us and just talk to us about this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a merciful God. Instead of, you should be afraid. You should be frightened. You should work harder. Our God says the opposite. Whoever believes in me will be saved. Whoever cries out to me will be saved. Maybe this is your day. I'm going to ask the ushers to come down. We're going to take an offering may sound like an abrupt transition, but it's really not, for two reasons. One is, the offering is our chance to uh, respond to maybe what the Lord is doing. And I would just like to pause and say for, for, uh, to all of you, actually, I appreciate your generosity. To you that are visitors, um, I'm, a, I'm grateful for an additional reason. You're the ones that make it possible for us to do church outdoors. We're not a very big church. In fact, uh, Mark, raise your hands. If you're not a member of our church, raise your hands. Here. See this? Most of our people are on vacation right now. (laughs) And so what that means is we are very grateful for you when you give because you make it possible for us to celebrate outdoors. If you didn't do that, we'd be in our church building throughout the summer. But but let's go one step further. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, the famous passage on uh, whoever sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. I know you're probably pretty familiar with that. But what you're probably not familiar with is is a little bit later on, a few verses down from that, he says, when you give generously, the people that are watching rejoice because it's an expression of the gospel, this fantastic news of what God has done. And at our church, we look at our offering as a time to celebrate what God has done and to say thank you. It's our way, one of our ways of expressing the gospel. Another one in just a minute will be communion. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for giving to us and making it possible to do the things we do. The offering that's being passed takes care of all of our church ministry and all this stuff that we're experiencing today. As you walk out at all the stairwells, there's a little kind of a little receptacle there. It says a benevolence or community needs. If God leads you to, put something in there. One, every single dollar that goes in there goes to needy people in the county that need help. And that's what we do with our money. Thanks for making it possible. Let me pray. Father, thank you for for being rich in your love and being generous with your spirit. Help us, Lord, to continue to be generous back to you and to the people around us. And Father, right now, I'd like to say thank you for all these people that are here. They're generous. I pray that you would just bless them richly, Lord, because of their, uh, because of their generosity and their faithfulness. And as the Father said in John, we believe, Lord, help us in our unbelief.